Well, we're telling stories uh, this month in these little videos of who we are as a scattered church, how we scatter and, and how the Lord is, is using all of you, the scattered church, um, in various ways throughout our city. Last week we heard Andrew's story of, of how really just going to a Bible study, having guys pray for him really led to a moment in his life where his life was totally changed. And we're gonna be hearing more stories um, of what life looks like as a scattered church, as, as you scatter well and impact our city for the Lord. If you were with us last week, we, we started a series that we're calling Life in Babylon. And we talked a lot about, we're going to keep talking about this idea of exile. This, this idea of, of what it means to live in exile. Last week, we looked at the prophet Jeremiah and, and these words that God spoke through Jeremiah to the people of Israel, to the Hebrew people who were in exile. They had been taken from Jerusalem and they'd been taken to Babylon. Now, of course, everything wasn't perfect in Jerusalem. <laughs> there was a lot of sin. There's a lot of corruption. In fact, that's why the people were taken to Babylon. It was part of God's punishment of them. It was part of God's judgment against them because of their sin. But at least when they were living in Jerusalem, there was a common kind of ethic. There was a Judeo, if you will, ethic that existed there in Jerusalem. So while not everybody feared and loved God, they, they had an understanding of the world that was at least driven by the Hebrew culture, by the Hebrew scriptures. But now they're in Babylon, and the people in Babylon had an entirely different ethic. They lived in an entirely different way. And I think what we said last week, and I think this is really helpful for us because you know, many of us, we, we came from places, we came from towns, or we came from a different time. Even if you grew up in Atlanta, uh, maybe you grew up in a time where the ethic around you wasn't that everybody was a Christian, but it was a world that was more Christianized. It was a world that recognized uh, a more of a Judeo-Christian ethic. That's the word that we used when I was a kid, that, that it kind of existed around us, that people's morality uh, in most of the places where we were from uh, was at least framed by kind of a Christian moral structure. Of course, that seems to be changing. Seems to be changing in a city like Atlanta that continues to become more and more secular. So how do we engage this world? How do we, as Christians, engage in a secular age, engage a world that disagrees with our understanding of the world, our understanding of morality and ethics? And what we said last week, if you were with us, is that, that typically when, when Christians find themselves in a context where people disagree with them around them, they do one of two things. The first thing they do is assimilate. They, they kind of assimilate to the culture. They find uh, a kind of ethic, a kind of Christianity, a kind of Christian doctrine that fits in with the broader context. You know, a lot of times this assimilation doesn't look like people wholesale, you know, abandoning all Christian symbols or all Christian practices in their lives. People still may go to worship services or still may have a Bible in their house, but it looks like them abandoning a, a kind of Christian doctrine, a, a kind of Christian ethic that, that cuts against the grain of the larger society. So Christians either tend to assimilate or to separate. They, they don't like living among people that disagree with them. Their, their worldview is always being challenged. And so we kind of form these little Christian enclaves. 
What's interesting about both of these impulses is that they kind of rage against one another. So those that assimilate, you know, they kind of rage against the uh, the world that they came from, uh, they, they're, they're breaking away from their, you know, to quote Ben Folds, redneck past that's nipping at their heels. They've assimilated, they've progressed, they've come into the modern age, if you will. But those who separate kind of rage against the city. They, there's a lot of fear oftentimes in this kind of Christian separation ethic. The, the city is out there, it's coming to get you. You better buckle down the hatch. The evil city is coming to get, to get you. So this is oftentimes the impulse of the age. But what's interesting is in, in the Bible, we don't really see either impulse. In fact, oftentimes in Scripture, we looked at the passage in, in 1 Peter last week. Oftentimes in Scripture, what we see is that there's a call of God to be distinct from the world, to not be like the world, so to not assimilate, but to be present in the world, to be distinctively present. First Peter passage that we looked at, even as the world is speaking against us, as we're present in the age, the earth is speaking against our distinctiveness. They're seeing our good works and giving glory to God in heaven. The question, of course, becomes how? <laughs> If the call of the Christian is to be distinctively present in a secular age, how? How do we do this? Now, I'm excited about this series. We're going to keep talking about this over the next few weeks. And at the end of this series, we really want to have a Q&A, a time of Q&A where we can really get down to brass tacks on this. But, but tonight and for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at character sketches within the Bible, how, how we see real men and women in the Scripture work out this life in exile. And tonight, we're going to look at the life of Joseph. Now, Joseph was not in Babylon, but he was in exile. He was in Egypt. And, and the exile that, that Joseph experienced was an incredibly intense exile. Not, not only was he in this sense of exile, he was all alone in exile. Now, there's a lot that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, we're going to kind of survey the life of Joseph. If we were going to go over all of what I'm going to kind of reference tonight, we would have to read, you know, five or six chapters of Scripture. But for the sake of time, I, I'm going to abbreviate that for you. But I, I would do want to look at one kind of section of Scripture to, to kind of anchor our hearts and to, to get us going in this conversation. And it's this pivotal moment in the life of Joseph. He has just interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh had had these dreams and Joseph had just interpreted him saying that, that Egypt is going to have this great time of abundance and then it's going to have a time of famine. And he basically, after he interprets these dreams, lays forward a plan of how Egypt can survive this time of famine that they're about to go through. So let's look together at Genesis 41. This is Pharaoh's response to Joseph's interpreting his dreams and then laying forth this plan. Genesis 41, verse 38 to 41. Very pivotal point in the time of the life of Joseph. It says, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this and there's none so discerning and wise as you are, you shall be over my house. And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as it regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, if you know anything about the life of Joseph, you know that this is not where he started. Here he is second in command over all of Egypt, the most powerful country in the world. Only as it relates to the throne of Egypt, Pharaoh says, will I be more powerful than you. Joseph, of course, didn't start here. He didn't start anywhere close here. He didn't start on any sort of a path that you would think, well, one day this guy's gonna be great in Egypt. In fact, he was born as a Hebrew man, part of a Hebrew family, hundreds of miles from Egypt. If you know the story of the book of Genesis, it, it ends with actually the, the Hebrew people in Egypt flourishing and prospering in, in, in large part because of Joseph and because of his faithfulness. But the story of the Hebrew people really begins in Genesis 12, when God calls a man Abraham. And God says to Abraham, I am going to bless you. I am going to make you great. I'm going to make your offspring great. And through your offspring, I'm going to bless the whole world. Now, there was a problem. Abraham didn't have any children. He had no offspring. And I'm skipping a lot of detail, but in the most amazing way, God gave Abraham this son of the promise this offspring, Isaac. And of course, Isaac ended up having a son. He had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Again, a lot involved in the story here. But the son of the promise in the line of Abraham was Jacob, the son of Isaac. And Jacob ended up having two wives. You know, a lot of people will say, well, in a lot, we see polygamy and things like this in scripture. Well, what I would say is just a little bit of a side note. Whenever you see polygamy in scripture, it never really works out for the people, okay? It's never presented as a good thing. And just a little pro tip, having two wives is very difficult. <laughs> and having two wives that are sisters, it's even worse. And we certainly see that in the story of Jacob. He, 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 he loved Rachel. He fell in love with Rachel and he was tricked by his father-in-law to marry her older sister Leah beforehand. And what this resulted in is this rivalry, this war between his two wives. And the way that it kind of manifests itself is they both wanted to give Jacob more offspring than the other. Now, there's a lot to this story. And again, I don't have time to get into the detail, but Rachel was barren. She couldn't have children. And Leah, on the other hand, was like this baby-making machine. And so before you know it, Jacob has 10 offspring, 10 sons, and finally, the text says that God remembered Rachel. And Rachel, the favored wife, finally has a son. And it's Joseph. Of course, then she has another son, Benjamin. But you have to understand that. Here's Joseph, the oldest son of the favored wife, Rachel. And more than that, Joseph was born in Jacob's old age. It's kind of almost a grandson kind of relationship. He was an older man. He treasured this child. And all of his brothers knew it. They began to resent Joseph. And they really resented Joseph when Jacob gave Joseph this prized gift, this coat, this robe of many colors. Genesis 37, look, we pick up in the story, look at this. It says, Israel, which is Jacob, God had changed his name to Israel. So Jacob, or Israel, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all of them, they hated him. 
and they could not speak peaceably to him. Well, things actually went from bad to worse. Joseph started having these dreams. In the first dream, all of his brothers bowed down to him. Now, another pro tip, if you ever have a dream where all of your siblings are bowing down to you, just keep that one to yourself, okay? But Joseph told him, he says, guys, you're all gonna bow down to me one day. And then he had another dream. And And in this dream, not only were his siblings bowing down to him, but also his mother and his father were bowing down to him. And his brothers despised him and hated him all the more. Not long after that, his brothers were keeping watch over the family's flocks in a distant land or the family's herds in a distant land. And Jacob, the father, said to Joseph, his son, go check on your brothers. So Joseph goes out to check on his brothers and, 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 and notice the language. The brothers see him coming from the distance and they say, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. We're way out here in the wilderness. Nobody will ever know. Let's throw him in the pit. And we'll say that one of the fierce animals devoured him. And then we will see what becomes of his dreams. Well, they eventually decide not to kill him. One of the other brothers talks some sense to them. But their plan's not much better. They say, well, instead of kill him, let's make a little money off the deal here and we'll sell him as a slave. It just so happened as they kind of had him entrapped that their, their cousins came along. The, the offspring of their great uncle started walking by, the descendants of Ishmael. And they were making their way down to Egypt to trade goods. And so they said to their cousins, as long as you guys are trading goods down in Egypt, here's Joseph. And they sold their brother to their cousins for 20 pieces of silver. That's how Joseph got to Egypt. <laughs> That's how Joseph got to Egypt. Now, you know the end of the story. We just read it. Joseph is second in command over all of Egypt, only behind Pharaoh. But how did he get here? We came as this slave. He came in exile. I think this is an interesting thing for us to look at. How did Joseph go from this exilic place where he's the only Hebrew person in all of Egypt to this place of enormous influence. I think we have a lot to learn from this. I, I, think, I think actually Joseph can teach us a lot about how we ought to live in exile and how the Lord can use our lives to truly influence the, the world and the culture around us for Christ. You know, if you were with us last week, we looked at Jeremiah. We, we said that the, the, the word of God through the prophet Jeremiah pushes against this, this impulse that Christians have to separate Jeremiah says, don't separate, (laughs) build houses, start businesses, start a family, engage in the city, seek the welfare of the city for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Be a part of the culture, influence the culture. You know, there's been a lot written about this idea of Christ and culture, particularly in the past, you know, hundred years or so. Some of you may have read Richard Niebuhr or Andy Crouch or James Davison Hunter, and a lot of what is said in these conversations is along the lines of Christians kind of engage culture in different ways. One posture, and again, it goes along with what we've been saying, one kind of impulse is for Christians to be against culture, to fight culture, to try to overcome culture. This is manifest in what we call culture wars. But on the other side, you see Christians often embracing culture. Now, Christians embrace culture in a number of different ways. Sometimes it's just a wholesale embrace of culture. But, but oftentimes, the way that Christians embrace culture is to kind of mimic culture with a Christian label. When I was uh, 
in student ministry, at our big student kickoff tonight, when I started student ministry, there was this Christian band that everybody was into, DC Talk, okay? Now, this was kind of the age, the, the music that was very popular when I first started in student ministry was like Run DMC and Beastie Boys. People were listening to these bands. And DC Talk kind of sounded like Beastie Boys. They kind of sounded like Run DMC, but right after this, it was kind of the Seattle grunge movement and bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, they kind of became the rage. And, and from one album to the next, DC Talk went from sounding like Run DMC to sounding and even kind of looking like Nirvana. And it's like, how did this happen? You know, what happened here? Well, it's, it's what I'm talking about. Christians kind of do this. They they find kind of what's going on in the broader culture and they kind of put forward a Christian version of it. There's a Christian version of being a Democrat. There's a Christian version of being a Republican. There's a Christian version of BLM or whatever it is. Christians kind of either reject culture and fight against it or they embrace it and oftentimes by mimicking it, by just putting forward a Christian version of it. But I think the most Christian instinct is to redeem culture. You know, Christians often talk about the culture <laughs> as if it's something out there, right? Ah, oh, the culture, the culture, it's out there. But I want you to hear this. You are in it. <laughs> you are a part of it. I mean, for goodness sake, you, you, you live in Atlanta. You go to schools like Georgia Tech. It's a culture-making machine. Atlanta, you're involved in the movie industry. You work at these mega corporations, some of the biggest businesses in the whole world. Atlanta is the seat of government for our whole state. <laughs> Rather than fighting this and or receiving it, I think we we need to realize that actually maybe God has sent us into the culture to be a part of redeeming it, renewing it seeking its welfare, seeking its good. So how do we do this? What does this look like? Well, again, I think there's a lot to learn from Joseph. I mean, here's Joseph. He's living in exile. He's the only Hebrew person, the only Hebrew person in all of Egypt. And God uses him in this amazing way. So two things as we consider his life. First, the Lord was with him. You can't oversell this. I mean, God was with him. Joseph, of course, is sold as a slave. He goes to Potiphar's house as a slave. He's, he's bought by this Egyptian master. But Genesis 39, 2, it says, the Lord was with Joseph and he became successful. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, when it says he became successful, keep in mind, he's still a slave. But he had responsibility he had a high position in the house of Potiphar. He gained Potiphar's trust. In fact, the Bible even says that Potiphar's house was blessed on account of Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, but that doesn't mean, and I think this is something to remember, that doesn't mean that everything went great for Joseph all the time. Let's keep in mind, he is a slave. <laughs> of course, not later on, he's gonna be accused of rape. He's gonna be thrown in prison. But God was with him. God loved him. God loves his covenant people. And I want you to hear this. The Lord is with you. If you're in Christ, the Lord is with you. God loves his covenant people. He is for his covenant people. 
Again, that doesn't mean that everything always goes well. It certainly didn't for Joseph. But it means that Joseph could have this poise and confidence and honor in his life that came from knowing that he had a relationship with the living God. And because of this, he did excellent work. Potiphar trusted him. If you were here last week, we talked about this and, and, and we said that really it comes down to this. Do you understand who you are as a citizen of the kingdom of God? To, to really get this idea of life in exile, you have to understand that when you become a Christian, immediately you gain a kind of dual citizenship. You are a citizen of the city of man, wherever you find yourself. But when you come to know the Lord, you, you, you find an even deeper and more fundamental identity as a citizen of the eternal city of God, where Jesus himself reigns. And if you get that, if you know that, if you rest in that identity, you won't have to move out into the city of man, always seeking affirmation. You won't have to always be so angry at the city of man because it lets you down. No, you, you will have this kind of peace and poise, realizing that you are a citizen of an eternal and secure and whole and beautiful city where Jesus himself reigns. Now, of course, as you live your life in the city of man, if something good happens, you'll be happy. And if something bad happens, you'll be sad. But the city of man doesn't control you. It doesn't define you. It's not your fundamental being. You, you'll realize that in Christ, the Lord is with you. The Lord loves you. The Lord loves his covenant people. And again, the Lord being with you doesn't mean, just like in the life of Joseph, it doesn't mean that everything will go your way. But it does mean that even in the worst situations and in the best situations, you can have poise, you can have self-control, you can have peace. And it means this, and this is important. It means that you can do the right thing. You can do the right thing. This is something that's so striking about the life of Joseph. He continues to do the right thing. Throughout all of this, he sold his slavery. I mean, my goodness, I mean, how, how many more blows can a man take? But he doesn't get bitter. I mean, he could have. He was the favored son. And his own brothers sold him as a slave wrongfully, lied about it. Yet he kept doing the right thing. He, he wanted to please God. God was with him. He was with God. He didn't give way to apathy, did he? He could have. I mean, he was a slave. He said he could have become a cynic. What does it matter? He didn't give way to sexual sin. I mean, Potiphar's wife, there's one point in the story, the wife of his master, Potiphar, makes an advance on him. She says, come lie with me. She continues to pursue him. I can see him justifying this, saying, look at all this bad that's happened to me. <laughs> Finally, I just have a little fun in my life. But he doesn't, he doesn't give way to sexual sin. He, he knows who he is in, Christ, in the Lord, in Yahweh. And he doesn't withdraw I want you to hear this. So many people, I think somebody here needs to hear this. So many people, when you get hurt, when life doesn't go your way, when, when you have been wronged, when you've been a victim, you withdraw. You lose your courage. You don't engage. This is not what a citizen of the city of God does. You are a citizen of a whole 
and glorious kingdom. God has sent you into exile. He sent you here now. He sent you to this city of man to live for his purposes. Don't withdraw. So many people, when they get hurt, they withdraw. They, 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 they lose their... They lose their God-given courage. This is why people look at pornography. This is why people gossip, right? They, they need a diversion. They, they need something that makes them feel strong that doesn't actually involve any risk. But Joseph doesn't withdraw. He keeps doing the right thing. You know, my dad always used to say to me, he said, son, you know, all you need to do is just do the next right thing. It seems so simple. Just trust the Lord to follow his way. The D's kids, we started school this week and uh, our first little family devotional was Tuesday and I just said, you know what, guys, if you're gonna make it, and I said this to my kids and I'll say it to you, if you're gonna make it in Babylon, you have to be confident in this, that the Lord's way is always right. The Lord's way is always right. The old song says, whatever my God ordains is right. Whatever God ordains, whatever God does, whatever God says is right. And we looked at the passage in Galatians 6, 9, don't grow weary in doing good for in due season you will reap if you do not give up. Joseph believed this. He honored the Lord. He didn't separate. He couldn't separate. He was the only Hebrew in Egypt, but he didn't assimilate. He trusted in the way of his Lord. The Lord was with him and he was with the Lord. But secondly, the Lord was with Joseph first. But secondly, Joseph understood this command of God to cultivate. He was useful. I'm using that word, but it's, I'm really talking about here that he, he had this impulse of cultivation. And the Lord really used this. The Lord really used this in, in, in Joseph's life to, to bring about so much good and, and ultimately to give him great influence in this, in this pagan kingdom, in this godless kingdom. If any of y'all have ever read the book Culture Making by Andy Crouch, he, he talks a lot about the power of cultural products, how we, we really go out and we create these cultural products that, that have so much sway over life and over the way we understand the world, how we imagine the world. I'm, I'm probably confident that many of you, probably most of you, maybe all of you, none of you, <laughs> walked here tonight. I don't know if anybody walked here tonight. But probably most of you drove here in a car. You got here in some sort of car. And that car rode on streets. I mean, if you think about that, it's kind of an amazing thing to think about. You know, 150 years ago, that method of travel would have been impossible. <laughs> Of course, there's all these cultural products that are defining our whole experience right now, from light bulbs to air conditioners. You know, even the design of this building, it's a cultural product. There's a guy that many of you have never met named Hayes Laird, who was the architect of this building. And the way that you will walk out of here tonight was in large part defined by where he drew a line that became a wall, right? It's kind of amazing. And we're doing this all the time. We're out cultivating things. And of course, cultivation is not just uh, for material goods like light bulbs and air conditioners. I went to a funeral this week and I hope this is an encouragement to a guy like Will Carlisle. I went to a funeral this week and we sang the song Amazing Grace. And I thought to myself while I was there at this funeral, how many times has the song Amazing Grace been sung at a funeral? 
And of course, the answer is thousands and thousands and thousands. But there was a time when the song Amazing Grace didn't exist. It was, it's a cultural product. It was written in the 1770s by a guy named John Newton. There it is, a little church in Olney, England. Of course, the song, because he cultivated words and because he cultivated music, it's been used in this incredibly powerful way to comfort people at a funeral, to change the way that we understand the, the grace of God. Think about how much impact that has had. And of course, we're, we're part of cultivating things all the time, delivering a lesson plan, diagnosing an illness, changing a diaper. <laughs> These are all cultural products. We're all cultivating the world around us when we do these things. We're all shaping the culture around us when we do these things. And there's a sense when we cultivate things well, I mean, this is the initial command of God. Before sin, when Adam was put into the garden to cultivate the, the raw materials of the world around him, when we do this well, there's a sense where we please God and we bring a great credibility to the world around us. God has designed us to work. God does not want us to be passive. And when I say work, I'm not strictly talking vocation here. I'm talking all the things that we do, that we cultivate. He's called us to get our hands dirty, to cultivate this world that he has made. And when we do this, we, we please God and we gain influence. This is the story of Joseph. I mean, look at every scene in this story. He is working hard. He's doing the right thing. And he's figuring out how to be useful. I mean, Potiphar put him over his whole house. When Joseph went to prison, I mean, this is from Genesis 39. This is an amazing passage. Joseph goes to prison as a rapist, unjustly. And he gets there and he doesn't withdraw and he doesn't pity himself. He gets there, he works hard, he does the right thing. He cultivates the world around him. It says the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners. He is a prisoner, <laughs> He's in charge of the whole prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one that did it. You know, Jennifer McClish, after the service this morning, she came and she says, you know, you could, you should, you could dig deeper on this, Jason. And I didn't for the 9 and 11, but you guys get a little more. You're the five. And, and she's right. She says, I mean, think about, think about doing everything in a prison. There's some really hard stuff that happens in a prison. Some really kind of disgusting things <laughs> that happen. Some brutal things that happen. And here's Joseph. I mean, this victim, this guy that has been treated unjustly, running into these problems, serving, doing what's right, gaining the, gaining the full trust and respect of the prison guard. It's an amazing story. He did what was right. I got this next slide here. You know, Joseph changed the culture. He cultivated by doing what was right, by working hard. You know, I want you to do this. Christians work hard. There's no spot for laziness in the Christian life. God has given us a rhythm of work and rest, of work and rest. Rest is important, but work is important. Work and rest, it's a rhythm. Now, oftentimes we dishonor the Lord and don't rest. Right? That, that's when work becomes an idol, becomes too much of your identity. You're not anchored in who you are as a citizen of the city of God and you won't rest. That's sin. But, but oftentimes we can just be idle, right? Work can be an idol or we can just be idle. Remember how I said that Christians often mimic 
the broader society. Well, there's a lot of this kind of, you know, and I'm not critiquing the whole movement, but there's a lot of this secular self-care movement that, that frankly tends itself to withdrawal and laziness. And Christians have mimicked this. There's a Christian version of this too. And that movement kind of presents Jesus as this guy that just kind of hung out. No, Jesus was a busy guy. He was a hardworking, diligent guy. In fact, the gospel of John tells us that if everything Jesus did was written down, the whole world wouldn't be able to contain the books that were written. Jesus did stuff. Christians work hard. We're called to cultivate. We're called to be diligent. I mean, remember the story of the talents? Remember the story of the talents? The guy that just had one talent and he takes it and he buries it. You know what Jesus says to him, what the master says to him? This is from Jesus. You know what the master says to him? He doesn't say, you know, well, you try a little harder next time. No, he says, you wicked and lazy servant. Our diligence, our hard work, our, our engagement in cultivation, this is, this is part of who we, this is a part of our worship. This is part of what we do as, as people made in the image of God. And this is a big part of your scattering. I want you to hear this. What are you cultivating? Now, some of your cultivating is you're cultivating godliness around you. I mean, I, I hope for those of you who are parents, you're cultivating a godly household. You're discipling your children. I hope that's part of your cultivation as a church member. You're discipling other men and women. But some of our cultivation when we scatter is helping your kids with homework. Some of it's making dinner. <laughs> What a good stewardship that God's called us to cultivate meals. I mean, how, how, how amazing is it that part of the way we take care of ourselves is God gives us raw materials. He says, feed yourselves with this. And, and you can do that in a way that is health-giving to your home, or you can actually do that in a way that brings a lack of health to your home. Some of your cultivation is just taking care of your house, maintaining it. Some of cultivation is being a good neighbor, being friendly, helping out in your neighborhood, being involved in your school or community and local government. And a big part of our cultivation, of course, is our work. And we're called to work hard and to do good work. Don't, don't you see? We're, we're called to scatter and to cultivate the world around us. And as we do, as we work hard, as we trust the Lord, as we do what is right, as we do useful things, God is glorified and God will give you influence. I think we fail to understand this. You know, I mentioned Chick-fil-A last week. And, you know, I, I was talking about how, you know, we scatter and some of us are called to work in secular companies where it's very hard, companies where there's a lot of pressure to celebrate things that are maybe godless. And I said, maybe God's called you there to that hard place. We can't all work for Chick-fil-A. And I kind of meant it as a joke, but I really kind of meant it as a compliment to Chick-fil-A. It's a company that a lot of people want to work for, that there's a lot of really good practices. It's not a... Christian organization, it's a company, but it's a, it's a company that seeks to honor God. And true, Kathy, its founder and his family has a lot of influence. But here's what I think Christians don't understand. They don't have influence because they're Christians. They have influence because they make an amazing chicken sandwich <laughs> that we want to eat. They have cultivated chicken and pickles and bread in this amazing way. They've done something useful. They've worked hard. They've done it the right way. They've honored the Lord among the way, and they are Christians. And now God has given them this enormous amount of influence that they can use for the Lord. That's what changes Babylon. 
That's what changed Egypt. And that's what will change Atlanta. Now, of course, not all of you are going to own a popular fast food restaurant. But I want you to hear this. You all have stewardship. You all have stewardship. God has called you all to go and cultivate certain things. I mean, even today. And, And it may not be a big thing. But I mean, look at Joseph. These are not the kinds of positions that people try to get an internship for. Working as a slave in someone's house working as a prisoner in a prison. No, but the Lord has this way. When we are faithful in little things of giving us influence and authority over really big things. So a few practical thoughts on this. When you scatter, as you go and cultivate this world around us in your neighborhood, among your kids, in your workplace, here's the key. Here here is the key. We as Christians... I'm going to give you some practical points here, but we as Christians are called to live out the ethic of the kingdom of God, of the city of God, as we scatter in the city of man. So three things. First of all, seek to be a servant. Seek to serve. The city of man, the ethic of the city of man will say, the way up is getting people to serve you. The person who has the most servants is the greatest. But you know what the ethic of the city of God says? the person who serves the most is the greatest. (laughs) City of Man says the person who is served the most is the greatest, but City of God says the one who serves the most is the greatest. So seek to live out the ethic of the City of God in the City of Man. The second thing is, is do a good job. Seek to do things well. City of Man, you only really do a good job when you get a bonus. You only really do a good job when everybody sees you doing a good job. But as citizens of the city of God, it's, it's, it's as if we know that we're always being watched, right? God always sees what we're doing. And, and we don't work to please men. We work to please God. And we want to do things well. Small things or big things. I mean, whether it's a small thing like making dinner tonight or if it's a big thing like preparing for some major presentation Seek to do things well. And and as you do, the Lord has this way of giving you more and more and more stewardship. Again, the, the call of the Christian is to live out the ethic of the city of God in the city of man. Sadly, what happens is we start just taking up the ethic of the city of man. And even more sad, we start bringing the ethic of the city of man into the house of God. And number three, and I think this is important. Keep your eyes open for opportunities. See where the Lord might be moving. Christians trust the Lord. Christians are willing to be patient. Christians are willing to be faithful. But we also have our eyes open to see where there may be an opportunity, where the Lord might be doing something. There's a moment in the life of Joseph where the cupbearer of Pharaoh is in prison with him. And the cupbearer has a dream. And Joseph interprets the dream. And and, and the interpretation of that dream is that the cupbearer would be restored to Pharaoh's household. It's exactly what happened. But before the cupbearer left, Joseph says to him, remember me, I'm here unjustly. Don't forget about old Joseph in prison. Now it was two years later that the cupbearer actually remembered him, said something to Pharaoh. But he did. 
It was an opportunity. Joseph had to be faithful. It didn't happen immediately, but he took advantage of the opportunity that the Lord was given him. You know, ultimately, Joseph would be exalted to this incredible office, right? Second in command, Pharaoh gave him his signet. And you know what Joseph did when he got to that high place? He did what he always did. He did what was right. He worked hard. He was a good steward. He built these amazing storehouses that when the seasons of plenty or the the time of plenty, he stored all this food. So when the famine came, there was plenty to eat in Egypt. And eventually this famine spread all the way to the land of Canaan, all the way to Joseph's household. And sure enough, if you know the story, his own brothers seeking rest from the famine, seeking food for the, during the time of famine, they came to Egypt and without knowing him, without knowing it, they bowed down before him just as he had dreamed those many years before. But because of Joseph's faithfulness, his whole family was saved and they flourished and they prospered. But don't you hear this? But all of this was God's plan. Psalm 105 says something amazing. It says that God sent Joseph to Egypt ahead of his family. This is the way the psalmist says it. God sent Joseph into exile, into Egypt ahead of his family. Now that's an interesting way to say that. You, if, if just hearing the stories I've kind of told it tonight, you would have said, well, his brothers did this horrible thing. No, but, but Psalm 105 says, no, actually, yes, his brothers did do a horrible thing, but in the providence of God, God sent Joseph into Egypt, into exile, so that Joseph could be there at this right time, so that the people of God could be spared from famine. Look at what God has done. Even in this horrible place, even in this painful place, God had his purpose for Joseph being in exile. And guess what? God has his purpose for you. Wherever he has sent you, you're, you're there for a reason. You're not there on accident. Don't you, don't you realize that? God has ordained this. God in his providential way has you there. And as you understand who you are as a, as a citizen of this eternal city of God, you will find so much purpose and so much life there. You know, Joseph did an amazing thing. And of course, the people of God were, were blessed because of it. But eventually, the blessing would diminish. They were made slaves. They were tortured. They were in need of another deliverer. But God ultimately sent a great deliverer. A deliverer who, like Joseph, was actually betrayed by his own brothers. His earthly brothers and his spiritual brothers, his disciples. Like Joseph, he was sold for silver. Like Joseph, he was taken to a faraway place as an exile. Like Joseph, he was wrongfully accused. Like Joseph, he was put in prison. And more than Joseph, of course, he was killed for sins that were not his. But through his faithfulness, through the faithfulness of this greater Joseph, Jesus, God exalted him. And Jesus is calling you to know him, to experience the power of his righteous life, the power of his atoning death, the power of his resurrection. 
to be a citizen of his eternal kingdom, to live in his eternal city, to find your true rest and identity and poise there where there is peace and beauty and goodness because the resurrected Jesus himself is the king. And when you find your life there, a citizen of the city of God, through Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus, you will have so much poise and compassion. You, you, you won't need to be affirmed by the city of man. So you won't assimilate. You won't always be so disappointed in the city of man because you know it's not your ultimate home. You'll be able to bless the city. And God through you will be able to do so much good for his people and bring so much glory to himself. Let's pray. Father, give us faith tonight. Give us faith. Give us faith tonight, Lord. May we not believe that our city of man place is our ultimate place, that our city of man identity is our ultimate identity. But may we be a people who understand that we have been called by an eternal king, Jesus. We've been called by him to be citizens of his eternal, imperishable, glorious city that, that is immovable, that cannot be shaken. And Father, as we find our rest and our life and our identity in him, I am so confident, Lord, that you will use us as we scatter. You will send us out into this city of man to bring about good. We'll be able to do what is right. We'll be able to trust you. We'll be able to cultivate this world around us in a way that pleases you. We won't be wicked and lazy servants. We'll be faithful. Give us faith, Lord, to see these things. I pray this in Jesus' name.